Welcome to the Global Energy and Environmental Law Podcast. My name is Mayanna Dellinger. I'm the Law and Policy Director of the Einstrong Foundation. We research and support innovative solutions to climate change, education, and global poverty. Today is June 23rd, 2022. Today and in the future, we'll discuss innovative and traditional solutions to climate change from many angles. Today, I'm interviewing Christian Nielsen about his views on behavioral change and other issues in relation to climate change. Christian S. Nielsen is a postdoctoral research associate at the Department of Psychology, University of Cambridge. Christian received his PhD from Copenhagen Business School in 2019 with a dissertation examining the role of self-regulation in environmental behavior change. Christian's current research focuses on behavior change in the context of climate change mitigation, biodiversity conservation, and sustainable clothing consumption. On a side note, both Christian and I were born and raised in Denmark and hold graduate degrees from there and elsewhere. Thank you for joining us, Christian. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Good. So um, currently, only about 40% of Americans consider climate change to be a very big problem, with another 25% considering it a moderately big problem. 34% consider it to be either a small problem or not a problem at all. And that's astonishing, especially here as we're entering the summer months with droughts and even more heat than, uh, than during the winter months, of course. Scientific research also shows that climate research, climate change is a very big problem, of course, and an urgent one at that. Why do you think that there's this discrepancy, at least here in this country, the United States? Yeah, that's obviously a great and important question. I think there are quite a few re different reasons. I should say that I'm not an American. I don't live in the United States. So I say this as an observer mm -hmm. of the United States and what's going on, at least from afar. Mm -hmm. But I would say media plays a major role in this. So depending on which media outlets you follow in the United States, they either or quite often poorly or rarely cover climate change. Mm -hmm. And if they do, they mostly talk about the impacts of climate change rather than uh, the solutions. Mm -hmm. So one reason that most people might not be as concerned as we would like them to be is because they are not told that they should be concerned about that. And here, I think you can draw parallels to or contrast with what happened during COVID. Mm -hmm. They got told in the news, at least, uh, let's say you had a rough beginning where COVID wasn't treated that seriously. But when it was, it got communicated everywhere, uh, with some exceptions. But mostly, we were told that this is a major crisis. We need to tackle it as a crisis. We are not really there yet with climate change, I would say. And there are probably different reasons for that. Um, for example, who has stakes in uh, mitigating climate change and who would like to see that not happening, that as political or financial. We can get into that later, I would imagine. Mm -hmm. See, another reason why people are not that worried is that climate change as a phenomenon is very complicated. Mm -hmm. um, so it is caught by many uh, different actors across many different countries. Uh, it, it, its impacts are delayed. Uh, you don't necessarily get immediate feedback from emitting greenhouse gas emissions. Right. Uh, so it takes a while before we actually can observe the implications or impacts of our actions. And sometimes those impacts might not even occur in the region where it's caused. So 
most greenhouse gas emissions are emitted in the West, uh, but most impacts will be felt most severely in the developing countries, which is uh, very sad. And you have uh, obviously a lot of inequality implications of that. Mm -hmm. I read also, or I am reading, I should say, a really good book about uh, the psychology of environmental law uh, that points out precisely what you're saying. And that is that human beings are not very willing to or not very good at uh, considering eff temporal effects uh, that are, so in other words, effects in the out in the future or effects uh, that are geographically distant. So exactly what you're saying, things that happen in the future or in other countries, people either just don't care about much or, or can't really relate to them as much. Do you think, though, that's because of the fact that they just don't care? Or do you think it's because there's so many other issues that people worry about on a daily basis with inflation and jobs and whatnot, that it just seems, climate change just seems still too amorphous for them to figure out? I think it's probably the latter. So living uh, life is complicated. We have to take care of many different things. Uh, we have many different interests and we have other societal problems that we need to tackle. Um, mm -hmm. So sometimes uh, climate change just falls down the list of priorities. Mm -hmm. uh, as I said, one reason for that might be the media's hand, uh, tackling of the issue, but it, we also have uh, poverty. We have uh, health crises in many countries. We have obesity. We have whatever it could be. Mm -hmm. um, some of them can be linked to climate change, but they uh, are not always the case. So I would say that while we should care about whether people are concerned about climate change, because I, I, it might, for example, relate to policy support, mm -hmm. I think considering the timescales uh, within which climate action needs to happen, we can't expect that we would change everybody's minds and we will not get everybody equally concerned about climate change. Right. So I think this tells us that we also have to look for ways where we can reduce greenhouse gas emissions without sort of requiring everybody in a country or globally to be concerned about climate change. Mm -hmm. And that is difficult, but it's doable. Um, you can link it to other uh, societal problems, as we talked about. Mm -hmm. um, that's one. Uh, you can change infrastructure without necessarily uh, getting people to, let's say, purchase an electric vehicle or take public transportation just because of environmental concerns. It could be because it's cheaper, it's easier, uh, whatever it will be. Those could be alternative motivations we might need to tap into. I mm -hmm. think. Mm -hmm. That's a good point. Yet at the same time, to push back on that argument a little bit, doesn't that require, I mean, ultimately, this all requires lawmakers and policymakers interest in changing a lot of laws, as I see it. Uh, and in turn, that requires the general population voting for those laws. And so then we're back to whether or not the you know, everyday people are interested in that or not, because don't politicians just do, they just do whatever voters find important, right? And what will get them elected and re-elected? They don't necessarily do things for climate change out of altruistic reasons, right? At least not so much in this country, I would say. I think that's a fair counterpoint. But if you'll allow me to get a little bit uh, uh, stuck, if you will, mm -hmm. um, I would push back on saying that lawmakers only care about what the public opinion is. So mm -hmm. first off, most people don't live in democracy. Right. So Western countries, even though they're the most responsible for greenhouse gas emissions, um, 
many countries or many people don't live in countries where they have democratic institutions. And even the countries that do, they might not be equally response, uh, responsive to everybody within a public and whether they care about it. So in the United States, you have campaign donations, you have powerful lobbying uh, groups, and policymakers may be more responsive to what they think uh, because they know that campaign funding is one way to get elected mm-hmm. or re-elected. Uh, mm-hmm. But these the opinions of lobby groups or powerful institutions might not reflect the broader public. Right. That's, very so, good. that's a very I'll good point. Push back. Yeah. yeah, no, that is a very good point, yes. Um, yes, very complex. I like what you're saying, though, about messaging, at least to if we're presuming that it would help to get the general public uh, more motivated about doing something for climate change uh, to then, you know, see if we could work with the media, but like you talked about, and work at it that way. So there's more of a bottom up push from people, at least in democracies, to um, to push on their lawmakers to get more action in this area. And aren't the the media missing, uh, at least uh, in this country, some of the point right now? I don't know if you've been following uh, a little bit of the, the media cover coverage we have here in the United States. is very focused right now on the extreme drought here in California and the American Southwest um, and talking a lot about the effects of, of that and how farmers can't get water enough and people can't water their lawns and so on and so forth. Uh, but again, it seems like they miss, as you also said yourself, a little bit of the point of what then to do about it and how is drought connected to climate change. Um, so what can we do to get the media to take the next step? And do you think they don't do that out of political fears? Or why don't they mention the drought is because of this extre- uh, climate change and it's extreme and we need to do something about climate change now because they fall short of that? Do you have any thoughts on on that? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's a great question, a very complicated uh, issue. Uh, and I think there are several things going on. So one, the media, ha- well, some media haven't been very good at linking extreme weather events to climate change. So people who might not be that familiar with climate science might say, oh, this drought is just because of natural variation mm-hmm. in weather and we get droughts once in a while so why is this any different Mm -hmm. so if you can and i think one reason for that is that some journalists are not necessarily that literate in Mm -hmm. understanding climate change Mm -hmm. so that also makes it more challenging to make confidently make links between a certain weather event and whether it's uh, the probability of that happening is linked to to climate change Mm -hmm. or on the science side of things we now have attribution science where we can with greater confidence say uh, the probability that this wouldn't a certain event wouldn't have happened without climate change so we can actually better mm-hmm. attribute an extreme weather event to to climate change so mm-hmm. that is one i think another in the united states particularly is you have private uh, media companies mm-hmm. so that is separate from well at least in many European countries where you have public media institutions that are not necessarily as responsive to profit motives uh, or the ownership of the media platforms. And a certain uh, media outlet might be more tied to a certain political uh, orientation than others, Fox News being (laughs) clearly Mm -hmm. the right-wing version of that. Mm -hmm. And then some would say MSNBC, whatever it will be. Mm -hmm. They also... Uh, have a business to run and yes. they care about engagement they care about likes shares on the social media platforms 
viewership. So they respond to that. And if their viewership don't are not that interested in climate change, then telling them over and over again that uh, a crisis is undergoing might not necessarily uh, be the best business decision. That's a very good point. And I would also say that uh, it is true that a lot of people, in my experience, or what I'm finding here, is that a lot of people actually don't know as much about climate change and attribution science and so on as some of us might. But on the other hand, a lot of people might also just be fed up, don't you think, with all these doomsday scenarios and facts and you know all the negative events in Ukraine and whatnot. Um, so do you think there's another way we could attack this uh, whole issue in, in, you know, instead of expecting to just feed facts to people if they just don't care or they can't relate to it anymore? Is there something we could maybe do that's more positive, you know, or more, more effective? I'm thinking, what about tying this, as some rhetoric goes, to the political agenda and talking about it in positive terms, such as, you know, green technology could create jobs and help out with your everyday health and, you know, things like that if we don't have air pollution instead of just the doomsday scenarios and facts over and over do people not in other words listen to real facts anymore i think that's a great point so we need if you continue to point out that there's a very serious problem but you don't provide any uh, solutions to solve that problem you feel powerless mm -hmm. it's the same in your everyday life if you have a stressor in your life but you can't do anything about it it causes anxiety Mm -hmm. uh, assuming you buy the premise of the problem. Mm -hmm. So I think if, whenever there's climate, uh, extreme climate events happening, if you can tie it to climate change, but also then provide uh, solutions for how we can address that that are much more concrete than necessarily only having to completely fundamentally change uh, the way our society is structured, which might be necessary, but you can have more concrete uh, intermediate steps that will help us get some of the way. And that might uh, get a buy-in from farmers if you can tie to their interests, at least in the short term, mm -hmm. so that people are provided with an op option for how they can try to address it. Mm -hmm. Because clearly farmers in California or in parts of Africa, they know that their livelihoods might be challenged. And if they are just forced to sit back and are not provided the solutions or the tools necessary to transform their business in the wake of climate change, then that's a very uncomfortable position to be in. And then maybe it's easier to say, I don't recognize the problem. Mm -hmm. It's to be tackled. Yeah, great, great point. To change gears um, a tiny little bit, you've both contributed to and yourself written about the coupling between behavioral research and traditional policy tools such as legislation, tax policies, uh, tax policy, policies rather, and politics in general. Can you elaborate on how you think behavioral research and tools may help move the climate agenda forward among regular people, so to speak, and politicians per se? Yes, so the way I see behavioral science and contributing to climate change mitigation is in two different ways. Um, so. One is that we in behavioral science have identified what we could say are pretty unique, well, at least to that literature, interventions for changing behavior. So that could be whether we set a default, it could be communicating social norms to get people to change their behavior, whatever it will be. So we have some interventions that we would consider have emerged 
from behavioral science. And these interventions are not always on policymakers' minds because they're used to talking about taxes, subsidies, um, financial incentives, for example, and they're still meaningful, but there is a broader array of interventions that we could consider. Some of them might be more feasible to implement and more cost-effective. It will depend on the problem and country at hand. Another way behavioral science might be relevant is to inform the design of existing policy tools to sort of try to increase acceptance and compliance, whether that's the way a policy is framed or how it's communicated to meet the values of its target audience. For example, the, if you want to have a carbon tax, if you communicate it uh, in a certain way, it might be met with immediate resistance because, especially in the United States, mm -hmm. tax is really a positive word. But if you can think about another way to communicate it, where you get buy-in to a different degree or better emphasize the benefits of this policy, then maybe you'll be more successful and maybe you could ride out whatever initial pushback you might receive. So I also want to mention that what I'm saying here both applies to public and private policies. So it could be policies within organizations, institutions, and they also play a critical role in, in climate change mitigation. So given uh, the political landscape in the United States at the moment, it seems unlikely that you would pass major political reform, uh, at least at the federal level. Mm -hmm. So considering that there is this sort of gridlock, you have to look elsewhere to try to reduce uh, greenhouse gas emissions, at least in the short and maybe even medium term. So that is turning to organizations, companies, and try to get them to implement policies within their institutions or within the organizations, whether that's in the supply chain, whether that's initiatives targeting their own employees or their the leadership within uh, the organizations. That could be a way to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And that's very and, interesting. Oh, I'm sorry. That's, no, that's, that's actually very interesting. What would motivate them to do that? Because I'm grappling uh, with that a little bit in my own uh, research right now, sort of making corporations or not making them, but um, persuading them to take some voluntary action. But what would motivate them to do that other than, of course, PR, which is also valuable, I should say, but what would motivate them to take voluntary action? Well, that's uh, the tough question, isn't it? And it mm -hmm. depends also on the institution uh, or, or company uh, that we talk about, because clearly a fossil fuel company would not be interested necessarily in un undertaking massive business uh, operational reform or completely change their business model. At least it's unlikely. Mm -hmm. We do have an example in Denmark where, uh, where what is now called Erste, they it was called Dong back mm -hmm. in the day, they sold off their fossil fuel production and are now one of the leading companies on renewable energy production, especially wind energy. So there are examples, but there are also historical examples of fossil fuel company really undermining climate right. mitigation progress. Right. Uh, other companies, it could be, let's say Walmart, they might have, um, if they implement a policy within their the supply chain, it could reduce costs, it could re reduce or uh, improve the the well-being of the employees, for example, uh, it, within the areas they work in. 
And if you can get Walmart to change their supply chains and the products and inputs to whatever products they, they supply, that could have major implications. Even if they change their their employees and try to get them convinced to do something on climate change, that could reach more than a million people mm -hmm. because they're a massive employer. Mm -hmm. And they could put pressure on their suppliers so they can, in supply chain contracts, specify environmental performance criteria that ultimately reduce the the environmental impacts of the products and services they uh, offer. That's very interesting. And, you know, I see some promise uh, in that. People poo-paw that sometimes a little bit, saying they're only doing it for promotional or PR reasons to make more money. But isn't that a good enough step? I mean, it doesn't have... Steps don't have to t be taken only because of legislation, right? As long as they're taken for some reason, then it doesn't really matter what the reason is. It could be for profit mo motive as well, couldn't it? Uh, I think so, but it will vary depending on your political stance, I think. So mm -hmm. many in the climate community find promoting private governance, as you could call it, mm -hmm. quite uncomfortable because it, they might not necessarily see Walmart and everything that company stands for as being very legitimate or ethical. Right. So having to swallow that, considering the political landscape mm -hmm. especially, might be tough. Mm -hmm. And maybe they don't see it as a long-term solution right. and could potentially see it as a risk if we go down that avenue to sort sure. of legitimize what they are doing. Sure. But I think at this point, any initiative that reduces total greenhouse gas emissions is valuable. Exactly. It's the wedges, you know, sorry, but little wedges or little different little steps that lead to the ultimate result, maybe. That exactly that. Uh, on that note, Christian, talk a little bit about greenwashing, because I will agree corporations might be a little overly, you know, promissory about what they are accomplishing in the green uh, area. So can you talk a little bit about what greenwashing is and steps that are taken against this inexcusable corporate strategy uh, in the EU, as far as you know, and here in the United States, as far as you know? Yeah, so greenwashing is essentially any communication that promises environmental benefits that are not in actuality real. So it could be that you say that your product is sustainable, but what does sustainable mean? Mm -hmm. And it's sustainable, sustainable compared to what? Mm -hmm. And we see this increasingly now with uh, carbon offsetting. So you can carbon offset the emissions associated with your product, and then you can call your product carbon neutral. But that hinges on these carbon offsets actually taking emissions out or CO2 out of the atmosphere and then storing them for a very long time. And that is not always the case. That I think that's a high uh, bar to meet. And many of these carbon offset schemes are bogus. Mm -hmm. in my view. Mm -hmm. But so in Denmark, for example, one of the biggest meat companies, Danish Crown, they sort of have been arguing that they could sell carbon neutral uh, pork, for example. Mm -hmm. Or we have a, a dairy company as well that sold uh, carbon neutral milk. Mm -hmm. And they are now being legally challenged because of those statements uh, to sort of provide the evidence that would allow them to correctly make that statement. Mm -hmm. So they are now being legally challenged mm -hmm. to, to offer that evidence. And wow. We there was there's been a political initiative to in to dedicate money 
uh, to investigate these screenwashing claims, and they're discussing it. Uh, they will be discussing it in fall in the EU Commission. Whether whether and how it m- might manifest, I think, is still too early to say. Right. But it leaves consumers in the dark. Right. If companies can just make claims that are factually untrue. Sure. And it also detracts from the whole agenda, right? That people feel discouraged, I think, if things are said to be organic or healthy or low-fat or whatever, and then they aren't really, you know, it seems like that would be, you know, really hurting the overall agenda. Definitely. It's it's already very difficult to be a an environmentally-minded consumer and to reduce your environmental impact through consumption because... We don't always have full information about the environmental impacts of the products that we purchase. Right. And that means you would need information about all the impacts generated through the supply chain and delivery and what use of whatever products that we consume. Mm-hmm. And then we don't have that. Right. Yeah, you rely on heuristics like it's organic, as you said. But organic uh, products are not always associated with lower greenhouse gas emissions right they sometimes require more land or whatever it could be and right. without more concrete information it is really difficult unless you are an expert on environmental impacts to decide which products are better than others yeah and then we're back to what we talked about the fact that people aren't and don't want to be and we can't realistically expect everyday people to be right there's just not time enough in the world for people to inform themselves about all sorts of things um in that context i know i think you've contributed to some research into co2 labeling uh, that could help some standardized labels as to how much each product uh, emits or has been uh, you know how much co2 has been uh, attributed to each individual product uh, that is bought in the retail sector, for instance. Can you talk about it, that, that a little bit? Uh, could some, like a, maybe even a global CO2 label be created that at least could help signals uh, some some values to consumers? Or what is, in your opinion, the, the value of having CO2 labels on products? Yeah, I've been part of some research on carbon label and tried to thought, think about what is the promise of carbon label as a mitigation strategy. I see it as being quite promising, but for several different reasons. Uh, one is that many consumers, as we just talked about, don't know well where greenhouse gas emissions are coming from uh, and how that vary between the different products and services that they demand. A well-designed uh, CO2 label, a carbon label, can address these uh, these misperceptions that are many studies show are very prevalent uh, amongst the, the largest share of the population. So that is one way. So it could, in principle, uh, steer consumer choices towards uh, the lower impact uh, product options or away from certain product categories like beef, for example. Mm-hmm. There is no way to hide now for the companies who sell beef because all consumers can now see that this product that they're selling have way higher greenhouse gas emissions associated with it than tofu, for example. Mm -hmm. But that is still contingent on the design of the label. So what we propose and other people have proposed as well is that a well-designed carbon label would, one, communicate the greenhouse gas or CO2 emissions associated with the product, taking into account as much of the life cycle of the product as possible. So it would mean 
let's say a, a 100 gram of beef would be labeled as x kilo of co2 emitted but for most consumers that's still hard because it doesn't give you a reference point so we and others have also argued that for example coupling it with some sort of color ranking scheme will help help to make more easy decisions but there you get into the nitty-gritty of how you actually set up the carbon labeling scheme because how do you color code or rank the products? Is that in relationship to other sorts of beef product? Is it in relation to other sorts of meat products? Or is it all kinds of food-related products? Mm -hmm. So you could imagine if some uh, lobby groups would say that it would be just among different meat options or even among different beef options because mm -hmm. you still see variability within that product group. Mm -hmm. That's, Still, I would mm -hmm. say, even if that, which is not ideal, you could imagine that because you have the number, you would still be, it would still be possible for consumers to see and compare between, let's say, vegetables and meat or whatever plant alternatives that might be on offer. Mm -hmm. So that is the one. The other one, and um, that is mainly uh, happening if you then have the quantity, the quantified number on the products is that there would be an incentive for company and companies and organizations to implement initiatives to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions associated with with their products for mo mostly reputational uh, risks. So at least they don't want most companies don't want to be uh, labeled as red or having the highest greenhouse gas emissions because that might be a risk to them. Mm -hmm. And a side uh, note to that is that even setting up the carbon label scheme would require the company to actually carbon footprint or carbon map their entire supply chain. Mm -hmm. And they might not even know at the moment where their emissions are coming from because right. it can be quite complicated if you have thousands of suppliers. Right. And this also ties into whether or not uh, consumers would act on this knowledge. So some might, but some might not, some might not care, some might exactly not want, I read, to buy environmentally friendly products because they're very conservative and very Republican. And science uh, research shows that then for that reason, they consider that to be helping the other side, helping the liberal agenda, which they don't want to do. So all of this also, again, ties into a lot of human psychology and um, some technical potential of, of what is available. Uh, behind these different solutions. So can you talk about that a little bit? Because I noticed in your research, you use some interesting concepts called technical potential, behavioral plasticity and initiative feasibility. So can you explain what they mean in the context of climate change mitigation or even these labeling schemes? Yes, so we use these three different concepts to try to get at what is the actual likely impact of implementing let's say, a certain uh, mitigation initiative. So it could be, what is the technical potential, which means the greenhouse gas emissions reductions that are potentially possible if, let's say, everybody adopted or purchased a an electric vehicle. So if everybody within California from one day to the other or whatever period you want to consider would shift from the current car to an electric vehicle. What would that mean for greenhouse gas emissions? So that is the technical potential. But then we know that 
that this technical potential is not always realistic and it's not always feasible. So there are two other different factors or concepts that we then talk about. And one is the behavioral plasticity. So if you can implement policies, behavior change interventions, how much of that technical potential can you then actually realize? And you would get an estimate from that, for example, from randomized control trials or already existing policies, maybe from other regions or other states, to give you an informed idea about how much of the, the technical potential is feasible to achieve. And on top of that, you obviously need to think about what is the feasibility of actually even implementing these interventions. So you might run a study that says you could change people's behavior by this much if you just ran this intervention or implemented it at scale. But is that feasible? And even if you implement it, do the target audience then follow uh, and use the intervention uh, or follow the interventions to the extent that it was intended? So what you find is when you consider behavioral plasticity and initiative feasibility, some of the mitigation initiatives we often talk about, like a carbon tax or whatever it could be, might not always be as promising as they look on the face. And you see this with, for example, technologies. So some technologies sound very sexy and like they can solve all the problems we have, but sometimes they're not scalable. Maybe people, they're too expensive. It's hard to get people to use them. And even if you get them to use them, do they use it in the correct way, etc. And again, this just uh, shows the the difference between actual impact and technical potential or the potential impact of certain initiatives. Mm -hmm. That's very interesting. We've also in that context talked a lot about what massive amounts of people can do. But what about the opposite side of that, talking about how you could get a few select people, maybe like philanthropists and other high socioeconomic status people, CEOs and others, uh, to play in this role and get them to change uh, sort of their, not only their own ways, but their, you know, talk about what they do and, you know, set examples, in other words, for better action. What role do you think they could best play in the alleviation of climate change or other global issues such as poverty? Yes, that's a great question. So I've done a little bit of research over the last few years thinking about the role of people with high socioeconomic status in climate change mitigation. But to sort of set that up, uh, I think it's important to note that one, people with high socioeconomic status, that is usually they have high income or wealth, are well-educated and or have high occupational prestige. So it could be their professor or policymaker. And these factors are usually correlated, but they are not always perfectly correlated. But what research shows is that people with high socioeconomic status have disproportionately high carbon footprints. So that they, means that they are contribute more to causing climate change than the average person. Mm -hmm. And you see variability between countries. So uh, even the average person in the United States would emit way more than a person in Nigeria. And mm -hmm. we're talking orders of magnitude. But then even within a country like the United States, you have big inequality in how much people emit. So you have people who live on Wall Street, have a lot of money and can fly everywhere. They might have multiple houses, multiple cars. They will emit much more than the standard person in Bronx or, even, or somewhere else in rural America. So considering that, uh, they already from the beginning uh, have uh, 
a greater role in contributing to climate change. On top of that, uh, the sad reality is that even though they contribute the most to the problem, they're less likely to experience the consequences of climate change mm -hmm. or the impacts of it because they don't live in rural Africa, for example. They're, and even if they live in, let's say, extreme weather uh, prone areas, they can move themselves, they can shield it, they will have bef better housing stocks, they can fly somewhere else, they can just move. A poor person wouldn't have the means available to do that. So they have higher resilience in the face of climate disasters. But then, so having set that up, that also shows that sadly, they have a stronger role to play in, in climate change mitigation. So one, I said they contribute and consume the most and have therefore the highest greenhouse gas emissions. They also have more money, which means that they have, are more likely to have investments and a lot of money invested. They could uh, invest that money in fossil fuel uh, or other uh, CO2 uh, intensive industries, or they could shift it. They could shift it to uh, more environmentally uh, ambitious companies uh, or whatever it could be but in the moment at the moment on average they generally contribute more or have most invested in let's say climate intensive industries mm -hmm. uh, because they also have a lot of wealth they have greater access to policymakers. so they mm -hmm. have a disproportionate influence on the policy process and policy uh, setting so they can if you're a, a well-off a billionaire for example you could buy access to policymakers. You could set up lobby groups to lobby for your interests, whatever it could be. Uh, and also as a function of that, you could um, have an easier time to set up social movements, maybe even to rally around your interests because you can buy advertisement, you can buy social media advertisements, you could set up front groups that rally around those interests. Mm -hmm the average person don't have that means available. They're also less likely to have a big social media profile. Right. Few people have the same as Kim Kardashian. So if she communicates mm -hmm. something, way more people will listen to it. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's the, if I may break in here, that's the value though, isn't it, Kristen? Because yes, uh, those people have consumed a lot and have the access you talked about. Um, that's true. But that could also be a plus, right? That a lot of people pay attention to what CEOs and celebrities and movie stars and so forth uh, do. So even with little bits and even just talking about the issue and contributing to it, you know, sort of like, you know, it backfired on Jeff Bezos when he flew to space, but he too had talked <laughs> about climate change. But Bill Gates has been talking about this uh, for years. I mean, the examples they, or not examples they said, but rather the rhetoric that they mentioned could be valuable, couldn't it? It certainly could. So they have a platform that's much greater than most of us. Mm -hmm. So if they communicate it for rapid and ambitious climate action, that would diffuse much quicker than uh, the average initiative. Exactly. So there is, there is definitely a potential there. And at the moment, I see it as uh, as a barrier, but it could be. Uh, how do you see that be... as a How do you see that as a barrier, Christian? So the. The problem at the moment is that because they already have high status, they are not necessarily motivated to change that. So they have no. a strong social status within the current system. Mm -hmm. So they might not be as motivated to change that system that served them really well. 
That's true, but I think though, you know, to push back on that, a lot are and a lot are realizing the problem. And so sure, they live great lifestyles, but people, you know, not a lot of people do actually, but if those same people also said, acknowledge that as some of them are doing, but saying we need to do things about it, couldn't that still push the agenda forward? I know Al Gore way back when got criticized for living in a big, you know, house with lots of lighting or whatever, but at least he did help push the agenda forward a lot with the inconvenient truth and other things, right? Because, like you said, famous people or, you know, people with high socioeconomic status signal a lot to a lot of people. If they at least would talk about these things, wouldn't that be good? Even though they sure they have contributed to the problem too. But don't we need people like that to be, you know, influencers to really make some influence in this area? I think the sad reality in my point of view, yes, I think you're absolutely right. So we do need them at this point. And I think it's also fair to say, and I should acknowledge that there is a lot of variability between people who have high socioeconomic status. Mm -hmm. So some use it mostly for good. Leonardo DiCaprio, for example, is one mm -hmm. who's been advocating for environmental action for many years. Mm -hmm. Then you have other people who advocate less for that and, mm -hmm. and might invest their money differently. Mm -hmm. So... I do think that's fair to say, and not all of them will use their influence for bad. And I think we should do as much as possible to convince them or those people with the means to actually jump on this agenda mm -hmm. as much as we can. So I think that's necessary. And people like Kim Kardashian or whoever it will be might reach audiences that scientists will have a tough time reaching because exactly. communicate in the same language and they are more likely to be role models and listen to the voices of those people that they follow and care about. Exactly. Yeah. So influencers are, as I see it too, exactly not necessarily only philanthropists and CEOs and, you know, those types of people, but maybe movie stars, musicians, actors, you know, sports stars. Things like that. Exactly that. So uh, in the ideal case, they would also walk the talk. Right. So if they could imagine changing their lifestyles uh, to, uh, as I think, for example, meat. So reducing meat consumption generally is very important for mitigating climate change and especially tackling biodiversity loss. So mm -hmm. the food system is critical. And I think that's one area where celebrities have actually, well, some celebrities have done a great job. So many are now vegan. Mm -hmm. And for example, the Golden Globes before it was defamed, uh, actually served with uh, only vegan food for Correct. one of their. Uh, so that's an example of where you can set uh, a good example. Exactly. Very right now. It's mm -hmm. tough, right with flying because a lot of people still fly on, on private jets, which mm -hmm. we know is very carbon intensive. But mm -hmm. if we ever lead by example, that could be really important and will really inspire other people i think to mm -hmm. follow uh, follow suit right or even flew less at all as that's very polluting but that's maybe a lot to exactly yeah. <laughs> expect right now interesting so um sort of two broad questions here towards the end of our interview christian two difficult questions i will say but in general, what do you think of all these things we've talked about? What's the most viable strategies right here and now and actually seeing through some effective action within the next, say, 10, 15 years for climate change? That is, that's a tough one. I think for if we talk about behavior change, uh, as I mentioned in the beginning, I think it's unlikely we're going to change every, everybody's minds. So if we can try to set up let's say, environments or the way we uh, construct our cities in ways that, for example, 
facilitates public transportation, uh, walking, cycling instead of owning a car. I think that would be very promising. So we know that that's just one way where we can circumvent me, people having sort of an environmental motivation to begin with. We need to provide real alternatives to the behaviors and services that are at the moment very carbon intensive. Mm -hmm. Flying is, is a big one uh, at the individual level. Right now, we don't have that uh, strong alternatives. I live right. in the United uh, Kingdom. Trains are really expensive. Uh, mm. They don't run as often as you will. And even if you leave the country, it's another train company. So mm -hmm. what if the train is delayed? Can you get reimbursed? All of that we need to address to make, for example, flying less attractive. Mm -hmm. We need also to make vegetarian and vegan products much more available. In some cities, it's already uh, very available. But if as soon as you leave the big cities, it's harder to find. So mm -hmm. I guess supermarket and restaurants do respond to demand from mm -hmm. their customers. But sometimes if you supply something, the demand would also increase. Right. So I guess that's the more individual take. Mm -hmm. At the global level and at the policy level, we need some countries, leading countries to lead by example. I think we need a model, whether that's, uh, it could be at the city level, it could be at the national level, that really shows that a transition is possible. I think, and that other countries, other cities or whatever it is, or other companies for that matter, can replicate. So we need uh, positive role models. And that you can take that as we talked about to the individual level as well. But I think we need some to lead by example. Uh, we see some do that already, but even those that are sort of touted as being climate champions, like Denmark, where I'm from, Mm. When you look at the individual level, our greenhouse gas emissions are still way higher than where we need to be right. and way higher than many other countries that don't necessarily have the same ambitious policies. So right. on the one hand, we are leading in the transition, but it's, it's not happening fast enough. And we're still way above the global average. Right. Even with Denmark, huh? that's otherwise known as being so environmentally progressive, even that is not going far enough. So if I can add one thing, sure. it is uh, that we need to move beyond a techno-optimistic focus. So technologies will be an important part, but we already have meaningful uh, technologies that can help us get, get towards net zero, if that's the goal. So we need to not fall in this trap that some technology would just emerge miraculously and be the lifeline for society. We need to look deep in the mirror and say, we know the solutions already, they might not be fun, but ramp rampant climate change is also not fun. So maybe we have to accept, we have to change the way we live a little bit, but in the bigger scheme of things, that will be necessary and the best strategy moving forward. That's a very good point and one that I think has been overlooked a lot recently that individual action and uh, change really actually also can accomplish a lot and must. So for a leadership country, would it make sense for the rest of the world to not look so much to the United States? It just seems like we're not really doing much about climate change right now here in this country and won't for the next maybe five, ten years. Would it make sense for the rest of the world to simply give up looking to the United States as a leader 
and maybe look to other nations instead? I think so. Uh, but the problem is that the United States is still one of the leading contributors to climate change. So we can't leave you guys completely behind. So we still need you to pull your weight. But considering the climate, we probably have to look elsewhere and see, can we make, uh, let's say, climate pledges across countries that circumvent the United States? So they might be left behind on, for example, the green energy uh, transition. If they don't invest the sufficient funds, they don't shift uh, and train people to work in the renewable energy industry instead of the fossil fuel industry. Right. Yes. So it's that's the difficulty with the United States, isn't it? That, as you said, we are necessary as a leader, but it's so hard to get about that action at, at this level here, at least at the federal level. But let's hope local action might might do it instead than here in this country. Yeah, and I, I think it's also fair to say that there is something happening at the state level. Not every state, uh, all states, but some states are really implementing meaningful actions. So it's also important to look at the heterogeneity sort of underlying the federal level. Sure. So absolutely. some states are taking meaningful action and we should acknowledge that. Yeah. Uh, and it, it is important. Right. Good. Thank you so much, Christian. This has been very interesting. Thanks for your time. Thank you. It's a pleasure. You've been listening to the Global Energy and Environmental Law podcast. Today, I interviewed Dr. Christian Nilsson. Christian is a postdoctoral research associate at the Department of Psychology, University of Cambridge. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for other podcast episodes examining climate change and global poverty issues in the future.